If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started right now making your own podcast. Greetings and salutations, everybody. We have a very special episode of Happy Hour Podcast tonight. But before we get into that, real quick, I just want to drop our social media accounts where you can follow us and listen to the show, look at pictures and stuff like that from behind the scenes. You can follow us on Twitter at Happy Hour Show 3. You can follow us on Instagram for awesome behind the scenes pics of shows at Happy Hour Podcast 3. And of course, as always, you can find us on Facebook to find out what all it is we're up to. And now we are going to get into this thing. This is a very exciting show we have for you all tonight, and I hope you all enjoy it. Here we go. Let's get into Happy Hour Podcast with tonight's episode. Mark, are you there? I am. How you doing? I'm fine. And yourself? I'm doing very well. Uh, folks, uh, for those of you that are listening, I'm joined tonight by the great Mark Scheffler. You might know him from 1972's uh, amazing horror classic, The Last House on the Left, Wes Craven's directorial debut uh, Mark, you played Junior in that movie, correct? Yes, I did. So, I, uh, go ahead. no, uh, tell us uh, a little bit about the film for for the people that haven't seen it before. Uh, Last House on the Left was based on Ingmar Bergman's film called The Virgin Spring, and it's a cautionary tale about uh, two teenage girls who go to the city, New York City, to see a rock concert and end up in the clutches of an, a gang of escape killers and uh, one very sad junkie turned errand boy for his father. Yeah. That would be me. <clears throat> so uh, I do have some questions that uh, some listeners submitted. And, and one question is from... Uh, one of the hosts, my wife, Tabitha, and I will ask her question first. Uh, it's a good move. Very good move. So she wants to know, what was it like being part of such a controversial scene? And I'm, I'm sure you know the scene I'm talking about. And uh, did it have any mental effects on you as an actor, trying to separate your character from yourself, being a part okay. of that scene? All right. Tell me which scene you're talking about, because there could be several that would the that category. The one in the woods with the two girls. Oh, the rape scene? Yes. Oh, okay. So, um, to answer your first question, uh, it doesn't look the same when you're watching. I mean, it's it's still what it is, but it doesn't look the same when you're watching it uh, with you know, 50 or 60 people standing around right. uh, uh, doing various jobs. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I, I sort of felt badly for Sandra yeah. because Hess was, uh, Hess was one of my closest friends in the world uh, from this movie, but he could be very intense at times. And it was his intensity and his intensity that drove that scene. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I did feel badly for Sandra because I don't, I, I, I don't think that's what she signed up for. Right. Now, uh, did, did she know 
uh, was she told like yeah, what to expect I, going into this? Like, did did Wes or any of the producers say, "Hey, look, in this scene, you need to expect"? Uh, it's, that I don't. I I have I don't know that. Okay. I, I mean, we all. When you say, "Did she know?" We all had the script, right? So we right, all knew what what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and but David really took that scene and and kind of you know just made a meal out of it. He yeah. he uh, he was extraordinarily intense. And one other thing that he did, which I believe contributed to uh, the, the 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 depth of the depravity of that scene, is that. David, who had never acted in a film before, got very methody, and and he decided to stay in character uh, uh, the entire time we were we were shooting. So he was Krug, a version of Krug, twenty four seven, which annoyed a lot of uh, you know could be annoying. I kind of laughed at it because you know I didn't didn't bother me one bit, but he freaked out the girls quite a bit. Yeah. So. You know, I, 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 and the second part of your question was, uh, while shooting that or after shooting that scene, uh, being the way it, it uh, was portrayed, was there I, a way, uh, was it hard for you to mentally to kind of separate fact from, let's say really. fact from fiction? Look, man, I was 20 years old. Yeah. I was in a movie, you know. I was with a very cool bunch of people. I met a cool guy named Wes, a cool guy <laughs> named Sean. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I it wasn't it wasn't the same as it is today. Like we, we were just you know, Jeremy was sweet and we're still very good friends. So good. and Marty Cove. Uh, so we, we were just these guys, these people from New York up in Connecticut making a movie mm-hmm. and you know, throwing shit to the wind. Who who knew, right? Right, you know, right. Who knew anything? Yeah. So the answer the answer is, I think. Uh, first part of your question, I, I I remember kind of feeling badly at times for Sandra because of uh, David's intensity. But the second part, yeah, I didn't have it. Didn't have any effect on me. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, the next question is. Uh... Now you sh- this movie obviously was directed by Wes Craven. Did you two did you know did you two know each other prior to filming this movie? No. And uh no, and- as a matter of fact, uh, okay. No, I didn't. I didn't know Wes before. Okay. And uh after filming it and down the road further into your lives, did you two stay remain close, keep in touch and stuff like that? We didn't remain close. We didn't remain close, but we ran into each other you know, I don't know, every 10 years, every, mm-hmm. you know, and I actually uh, got a chance to see West um, about a year before he passed away. Yeah. I, uh, the art gallery in Burbank that uh, some artists had done a, a multimedia rendering of uh, scenes and characters from West's films and was putting it on display at a gallery. And the guy who owned the gallery knew somebody who knew West. And he knew somebody who knew me, yeah. and he got us to show up. So uh, I show up at this gallery in Burbank, and uh, after about ten minutes after I get there, I see Wes walk in the front. I came in the back door. Wes came in the front door, and we looked at each other and just laughed. You know, we just shook our heads and laughed. And I, I, I walked over to him, and he walked towards me, and he stuck out his hand, and I stuck out my hand. And I said, so what have you been up to? <laughs> <laughs> please and, please and tell he me at, he said, oh, you know, not much. <laughs> no, he actually said to me, you're still nuts, right? You're still nuts. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do. So um, we, we talked privately for maybe about a half hour about yeah. stuff. Okay. Had a, had a wonderful, just warm-hearted conversation. It was it was almost was, like you two had, hadn't really been away from each other for so long. Yeah, he was a terrific guy. He was yeah. just the nicest. Yeah, he was, you know, what a guy to, to do your first movie with, right? Just, he was just terrific. Yeah. The The next question I have here is, uh, as, this is a pretty simple one. Uh, what is your favorite movie and why? Well, I, you know, I don't know if I have a favorite movie because different movies 
appeal to me for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, I'm the same uh, way. I'm the same way. But I'll tell you a movie that I've watched over and over and over again and still have not lost my uh, respect for it or my uh, my my love of it. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, Godfather Part 1. Godfather, okay. Part 1. Okay. And then part and then the, the, the mix of part one and part two yeah. uh, is just, you know, that like puts me in some kind of heaven, you know, some kind of cinematic dreamland. What, what is it about The Godfather that you're, you're just so drawn to? It's, it's well, it's a, it's a version of the American story, right? It's right. immigrant comes to the United States and makes good. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's another, it's, it's the other side of that other coin, you know, where, where people are not criminals. It, it, it shows a lot of hypocrisy. It shows a lot of duplicity. It, and it's just so beautifully made. It's just that, you know, Coppola's attention to detail and mm-hmm. uh, his, his stunning ability to recreate uh, those eras yeah. and the texture and the music, you know, I just, I just love the, comp- the, the two, one and two put together. I just could sit, I could sit and watch it right now. If you said, hey, look, I'm, I'm not doing my show, but would you sit here and watch this with me? I would say, yeah, absolutely. Hang Probably out. Dodgers. You know? Hang out and watch Godfather. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And then, and then you know, there, there's some uh, comedies I like. I like, love Annie Hall, Woody Allen's Annie Hall. Yeah. Uh, uh, Star Wars. Oh, I love Star Wars. Don't even get me going on Star Wars. <laughs> oh, yes. Star Wars. <laughs> Um, Indiana Jones, the first one, mm-hmm. uh, Jaws. I mean, it, you know, it, it, those movies and some foreign films, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I have a panoply of, uh, of favorites. I, I don't, I don't believe that, uh, a favorite movie for different reasons. Yeah. I, you know, cause I, I like, I don't have a favorite food. I have a bunch of foods that I love to eat yeah. and, some I like better than others, but mm-hmm. they're still my favorites. Yeah. Like you know, my children. You know, I I love them all. I don't I don't have a favorite. Right, I understand that. I I can relate. I think there's too much too much emphasis is placed on the on the superlative, right? Yeah. On on the the best and the greatest and this. Well, you know, take a look at Last House on the Left. A piece of shit, for mostly from from. Early, early uh, uh, viewers, and, and all of a sudden, you know, like David Hess and Fred, Fred Lincoln and I uh, saw Last House at a screening. I saw an answer print, uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a final uh, a print of the film, at a screening at a Filmways uh, uh, post house, uh, on, I think on the west side of New York. We walked out of there and said, Nobody's ever going to see this. We yeah. had fun. We met you. We all met. We're going to be friends, and we stayed friends. You know, but when nothing ever happened, and then it gets released, and it does what it's supposed to do. It works in a drive-ins, and it's a second feature or a first feature on a, you know, a late night scary movie thing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in January of '72, I think Roger Ebert writes a three and a half out of four star review for Last House. And, and that's what turned it around. Roger Ebert's responsible for like the film being where it, you know, being what classic it is. It was that review of his that took us out of drive-in. We were like overnight yeah. out of drive-ins, and suddenly that film was in every mainstream theater in the United States. Yeah, and it's even and it, today it it's still holds up as one of the classic horror films. Yeah, yeah, that's uh it's an unbelievable quirk of fate that that you know person ends up in a movie that, and then that happens right yeah. it's oh, a, yeah. not just you get you get a movie but you get a movie that you think is gonna just you know come and go and suddenly it's been around for like 50 fucking years yeah you know so geez <laughs> and it, it even it okay even, with me keeps me going i mean and it was so successful enough i guess i well i don't know why they had to make a remake for it but they did, I guess. Yeah, I know. And it's it wasn't very good. I'm not a remake kind of guy. I have a theory about remakes, and that is that they're only okay uh-huh. if if the first film didn't exist 
Right. Would the remake be able to stand on its own two feet? Yeah. If the answer is yes, then it's a good film. If the answer is no, then it's, you know, Parasite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think uh, the only the only way I think that studios and screenwriters should get away with being able to do remakes is if the original was it like if it was a flop. And I feel like a remake is like a second chance, but there's so many great films out there that are getting remakes and they don't need to be remade. Like, like last house on the left, it, the original version was so good and it still holds up today that there was no reason that they should have remade that movie. Oh yes, there is. You're, you're whole, you're approaching it just from a creative point of view and as a fan, right? Right. As somebody who wants the movie. But I can tell you the reason that movie got made. Yeah. First of all, it was Deal. Okay. Right? It's called a Deal. Yeah. And that, John, uh, uh, that movie was shot in South Africa. So what that tells me is huge tax incentives somewhere. Mm-hmm. So the, the reason to make that movie was to be in profit before the movie is released. Yeah. And probably that's where they were because of tax sh- uh, 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 ish- shelter issues and uh, um, government stuff. Yeah. And this kind of funding and that kind of because there's no creative reason in the world that Sean would have taken that picture to South Africa yeah. unless it had to do with the deal. Yeah, it was a better deal. That that makes sense. As an indie film here. Yeah, and and what audiences and I guess it's better that they don't. I never look at a film as just a film. I always look at the deal. Yeah. The high- Right. Mm-hmm. So, and I can usually spot that by the credits. Yeah. So that's okay. the, that's the reason why that movie got made. That that makes sense actually. I guess because there's when it comes to remakes, you kind of have to look at it from the audience's side, and then you have to right. also look at it again from the the cast and crew's side and the studio side. Right. And there's there's always there's always more than one way to look at. Anything. Oh, every every movie deal, every movie deal is a is a a, a spider web of complexities. Yeah. And uh, uh, you know, this thing, that thing, uh, you know, like this this Alec Baldwin tragedy that happened. Yeah. Which just, you know, people should really put that. I, I read a lot of weird shit. People should really put this in perspective, mm-hmm. given given the sheer massive number of of rounds of ammunition that are fired oh, yeah. in most pictures and television shows over mm-hmm. the course of a year. And you hear about one accident every 10 or 15 years. Now it's tragic for sure. And yeah. somebody was at fault, yeah. but it wasn't Alec Baldwin. No. Okay. I can, I can tell you right now that when, when there are hot, when there are weapons in a scene, like the firearms, mm-hmm. okay. The protocol or the handling of that weapon, or those weapons, however many, is so defined, right? And I believe that, 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 <coughs> that the first AD who gave it to him, I believe that probably some, I think that an, an actual armorer mm-hmm. would, have, would have checked it one more time before handing it to the actor. Yeah, and now, I, just, I know you guys uh, obviously had weapons in your movie. Now, yeah, what, of course. What is, what is the procedure going from where the the prop weapon starts okay. to versus all, right. all the way up to where you guys get it and you fire it on set? Somebody called an armorer uh-huh. fires, prepares the weapon. Right. Right? And, and that department could have a lead, you know, like a key armorer, and then uh, a couple of assistants, depending on the size of the production and whatever, you just run mm-hmm. it up and down the ladder. Of course. Bigger the budget, the more people, right? Of course. So on a film like Last House, I don't know if we had uh, more than one person, but I remember that, you know, that scene with me and the gun yeah. at the end of the, near the end of the film. When I wasn't shooting, I wasn't walking around with that gun. Yeah. The moment I didn't need it, the moment Wes yelled "cut," somebody took it from me. Yeah, you you gave it back, and and I yeah I gave it back. That's the that's the protocol. So the protocol is this: if you're an actor and you're in a scene with a gun, mm-hmm. and, and you have to handle. Yeah. During rehearsal, you'll rehearse with a rubber gun 
or uh, uh, a dummy of other, uh, some other kind, right. just to get you know, the physical movements down. You don't get the actual hot weapon until uh, you know that the you're seconds away from rolling. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and then the moment the director yells "cut," somebody is there to take that from you, and then check it, especially if it's been fired. Yeah. Check it and clean. Yeah. Okay. You know, and the reason that's the reason that they have doubles and triples and quadruples of certain weapons is because they know they have to be checked after every take. So instead of wasting time to, to do that and then go back to it, they have another exact same thing uh, uh, ready to go. Yeah. But the, the, the person, the, you know, I, I'm very sad for Alec Baldwin on many levels that this is this what he, what happened is never going to go away from his consciousness, mm-hmm. right? Um, he he. Nothing I've read about it uh, uh, leads me to believe that an experienced actor like Alec Baldwin, no, you know, is is going to misbehave with a hot weapon. There's just no way, man. This just he's just too professional. Well, and it, it's not handling a weapon on screen is not something that that wasn't his first time doing it. He's done it many a time. So yes. And he knows the policy and procedure behind Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And and they have, and even if you haven't done it before, everybody's told the policy. Yeah. And they this work the with you. Yeah, they work with you on they it. and don't get to, like, you know, play with this thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, and if you remember back in, well, 1993 with with Brandon Lee and the, the movie The Crow, that, yep. that happened, that he, he lost his life tragically because of just like what happened here. <laughs> And that other actor in the eighties, who I knew like very casually, and when I say casually, he was a friend of a friend who I met at a party. Okay, right? uh, John Eric Hexum. Yeah, you know he was he was goofing around. Uh huh. You know, he, yeah, he said he 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 was. You know, I'm. It's sad that it happened, but he put the gun to his head, made some kind of you know flippy remark about. The not being on time or on schedule, and pulled the trigger, and boom. Yeah. See, I uh, I never heard about that that incident. Yeah, he was on the set of a of a TV show that he had just gotten, okay. and yeah, I, I met him once or twice, but I do know that I met him because I remember when it happened. You had hung out with him before. The yeah, the friend who who you know who was who was actually his friend. She told me, you know, she's the one who told me how devastated you know, yeah. we all were, but. Um, you know, Alec Baldwin's getting a lot of shit, and he and, is. And everybody is saying, "Well, he was a producer on the movie," you know, because his name is listed as producer. Yeah. So let me hip, let me hip you to that, okay? That's also a deal, mm-hmm. right? Alec Baldwin is the biggest name in the, in that independent picture. Yeah. Alec Baldwin's committal to do the picture got the picture funded, most likely, and got it enough distribution, which gives to, him a producer credit. And a producer credit. But there's also another reason. Mm-hmm. This seems kind of an inside show business thing. Uh, um, number one, it's a vanity thing to yeah. get a producer credit. Number two, if he's, you know, if what I think is true, that it was his cred and, and his committing to the picture that got it greenlit, then he definitely deserves it for that. But there's another reason. Um, whatever Alec Baldwin's fee is, uh, I, I make no speculation on that, but... Uh, instead of it all being uh, uh, governed under uh, Screen Actors Guild regulations, which would call for a uh, 15% or 14 whatever the number is, uh, pension and welfare contribution, mm-hmm. what the company will do is split up uh, Alec Baldwin's fee into, let's say it's uh, you know, $500,000 for right. three weeks. They'll split it up and they'll put two fifty to him as an actor and two fifty to him as a producer which isn't subject to that 15% overage for uh, uh, pension and welfare. So 15% of $250,000 is, uh, you know, quite a bit of money. It's yeah. like $37,500. Okay. So the company would then save that money. Yeah, I gotcha. So that's why that happens a lot. Yeah, okay. And Inside Hollywood Secrets. <laughs> I, I, love, I love Inside Hollywood Secrets. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's my feeling. I, I'm very upset by. I'm very upset that Alec Baldwin's taking all this shit from this because he's the least responsible yeah. for the whole thing. 
yeah, all he all he did was was handed the gun and said action and handed a gun that was just he he's hearing from the AD who handed him the gun. Yeah. That this is a cold gun, which means that there's nothing in it. Yeah, it was it was empty. It was empty. That's what he thought. Yeah, and I I don't. Oh, so, you believe... know, you've been working with somebody. You no, know, you've been working with somebody for a few weeks. And you go from hot guns to cold guns, and they say, "Hey, this one's a cold gun." Mm-hmm. So probably the first AD grabbed the wrong gun. Yeah, I don't know what the actual cause is, but he grabbed the wrong gun, and that gun, you know, fired something, some kind of projectiles that, in one, I think, one shot apparently was able to mortally wound the DP and injure the director, who were generally standing very close to each other. Uh, in Video Village, watching the shots on the uh, the filming on a monitor. Yeah, and and it's such a shame that with some with him and his list of credits that is just endless, and he's loved by so many people around the world. Oh yeah, and he's such a great talent. You hate to see something so horrible happen to somebody so kind. He's just you know I never worked with him. I don't know him, but boy, I feel for him. I really yeah. feel for him because and- there's no escape in this. No. This is this the fucking this is the thing. This this doesn't go away. No one forgets this. Yeah. And and it's it's a shame when when horrible things happen to to good people like that. Yeah, like with you know same thing same different moment but John Landis. Mhm. Uh with the Twilight Zone thing. Yeah. And and Brandon Lee. And Brandon Lee, right? Yeah. It's it's a shame it it's a shame when when horrible things, tragedies happen like that to to such good people, and especially when uh, they when they had nothing to do with it. But let's move on to something more uplifting. Absolutely. Uh, the uh, the last question I have uh, for my listener is: Is there any advice to those wanting to get their foot into the film industry that you would have as far as acting or writing? Yeah, uh, uh, come to New York or Los Angeles. Go to New York or Los Angeles. Everything else is just uh, yeah, not where the could go. Yeah, that's yeah, like you just, uh, look. Breaking into show business is very similar to uh, golf swings on the PGA Tour in the sense that there are like 130 or 140 guys who play on the PGA Tour with you know professional cards, mm-hmm. and every one of them has a different swing. However, what they all have in common is that at the moment they hit the ball, yeah. they're all pretty much the same place. And that's what, that's what breaking into show business is. Okay. You just got to come here and figure out what you want to do and get, get smart about it and get lucky. I was very lucky. I, I've been I, – I shake my head at the uh, amount of professional luck that I've had, yeah. you know, it's, it's fucking mind boggling and it's still happening and it's just fucking mind boggling. Now, are you, are you still doing films or have you, or are you doing uh, writing now or what's, what's going on in your life right I, now with that? I have a pilot that I wrote about a series, a series I want to do. Uh-huh. Uh, I, um, when I was 14, my, I lived in Pittsburgh with my father and he was a, a single parent. Mm-hmm. And um, his cousin was the general manager of a massive uh, theater in downtown Pittsburgh. And he was also the general manager of the whole Stanley Warner film chain. Yeah. So we used to go to movies. When I was a kid, we used to go to movies for free. We'd just go. Okay. And uh, um, we were in the Stanley Theater, which is this one downtown. Uh, when I was about 14, my dad and I were watching Jerry Lewis in uh, – the Nutty Professor. Oh, wow. That's a classic. And, and, yeah, and when the movie was over, I mean, I was such a Jerry Lewis fan, right? I, I went from being a Three Stooges fan to a Jerry Lewis fan. <laughs> and uh, I said to my dad, Jerry Lewis is the funniest guy in the world. And then I, according to what my dad said, I made some comment about uh, what what it must be like to be in the movies, yeah. you know, to be in the business. And my dad said, well, maybe you'll find out someday. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you know, you like to make people laugh. You could do this. And I, and I said something like, well, what makes you? And my dad just said, well, what reason? You know, people do it every day. What, why couldn't you do it? And I had no answer, yeah. you know. And I said, so we kind of made a deal that, that uh, okay, I would star in a movie 
that uh, opens up here at the Stanley Theater, like mm-hmm. 90%. Yeah. So that was when I was 14, and then cut to seven years later, uh, after the Roger Ebert review, and we went, and the film went mainstream, it, uh, I get a call from uh, the PR people. They want me to go to Pittsburgh, where I'm from, because it's opening up there, and it's opening up at the Stanley Theater. So the body of the series is in the pilot when he makes the promise to his dad and they make that deal yeah. to seven years later when he returns and it's actually happened. Hey, there you so, go. And that, and then the rest of the time is the body of the series, you know, in between what, all the shit that gets him there. Okay. And the time he's 14 to, to 21. So I have that, I have the pilot written and I have the whole series mapped out and I have a producing partner who was uh, once the president of one of the major studios. Oh yeah. So, yeah, we're gonna go out and try to cast get get a couple of actors and, uh, and then shop it to the streaming services. Okay. And then uh, I, I do my stand up. You know, I do uh, stand. I just went back uh, on uh, October 9th. I had my first show this post COVID. Okay. It went very well. I'm happy about that. So you're you're doing stand up comedy now? Oh yeah. Well, I started as a stand up comedian. Yeah. That, yeah. It's. Uh, there's a picture behind me. You see that picture over there? I do. Okay. So that's me when I was 10 years old. And the person in front of me is my little sister. And the first three men behind me are the three stooges. And uh, Really? When I was 10 years old, uh, in the run-up to my 10th birthday, my dad asked me what I wanted. So um, I just kind of quit. And I said, the three stooges. And he got them for me. He, that is uh, he hired them. They were... They were in Pittsburgh, and they were had a two-week gig at a country club. So he just went to them and said, hey, I want to throw my kid a birthday party on a Saturday afternoon. What do you guys want? They agreed on a number, and uh, next thing I know, uh, I've got my friends and about 60 people all together, their parents and some family. And I'm at the Holiday House in Pittsburgh watching the Three Stooges in person. That is amazing. Yeah, and in the middle of the show... Uh, uh, Mo announces to everybody that you know we all know we're here to celebrate Mark's birthday, and everybody applauds. And uh, Mo says, "Where is Mark?" And I raised my hand. He said, "Mark, come on up on the stage with us." So I went up on the stage, and to Mo's and the other guy's surprise, I knew all their material. I had watched their TV this shit for years. It was like imprinted in my brain. So I started interacting with them to the point where Mo put his hand on my head. And said, "I dub you the fourth stooge." <laughs> oh my and goodness! The audience applauded and they screamed, and I, I was there. I was getting laughs. I had a microphone, and that was like the moment I think where my soul was so touched by that dynamic that I decided that you know I'm going to be chased in this particular uh, dragon the rest of my fucking life. Yeah. And, and yeah, so I did. I, I dropped out of college in 1969. And uh, went to uh, Pittsburgh. I was at LSU. I went to school with David Duke, actually. Oh, wow. uh, Yeah. Uh, and I went to Pittsburgh, talked to my dad. I was going to come to California directly. My dad said, no, go to the Catskill Mountains. Go learn. Go go get a better education than you got at LSU. Yeah. So I did his advice. Went there. I got a job as the stage manager of a... Uh, of, uh, place called the Raleigh Hotel, which was one of the big Catskill Mountain resorts and had big name entertainment every every week. So I went there, got a job as a stage manager, kind of bullshitted my way in, Uh, stayed there for about a year and saw every comedian working that circuit uh, multiple times. And it was just, it's like, you know, postgraduate education. It was just amazing. And then I went to work for one of the comedians uh, I met. Who was kind of a well-known uh, working comedian, done a bunch of TV, including Carson when he was in New York and some other shit. And I worked with him. I started out as his road manager, and then I started writing jokes for him. And then I became part of his act, and I stayed with him uh, until we did two weeks at the Copacabana. Okay. I left the Copacabana. I left London after the. I mean, uh, this guy, London Lee. I left him after the Copacabana. And went out on my own, started doing stand-up in New York at different little shitbag places, and pursued a career as an actor. And that's what led to me getting Last House, and 
last houses, you know, uh, uh, what it was. And then I started writing. Yeah. I sold, I sold the first script I ever wrote. Uh, and that's what moved me to California. You know, so I've had a very unusual story, but it's, it's all real. And it's fascinating. Yeah, it is because I, you know, from that time, if I look back on the timeline, that, that thing that happened with the three stooges, that's what pointed me in the right direction. Yeah. It just, just, it, it, it enabled me to, at least on some subconscious level, discover my own personal true north. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like when I got here to, you know, <laughs> like when I got to the comedy store, or got to LA, but really kind of honed in on it at the comedy store. I'm part of that uh, uh, famous class of 1977 okay. that included David Letterman and Robin Williams and Jay Leno. Wow. Michael okay. Those are those are the guys I started with. You know, I used to be with them every day of the fucking week. Yeah. So, you know? oh, so you you were there while they were you were performing there while they were as well. Right with them, right on the same shows. Yeah. You know? Okay. On the very same shows. Wow. You know that is impressive. You know? So so um, yeah. Like I'll I'll give you a, I'll tell you a story. I got to to the comedy store through my agents then William Morris. I had, you know I landed in L.A. I had sold the first script I ever wrote. So I, when I landed here, I had a, an agent, I had a car, I had an apartment, I had money in the bank, mm-hmm. and I had an office. Yeah. So it's very unusual, right? It's like I know that, but it happened. It's, it's the way it happened. So um, I was in a meeting with my agents. And they said to me, what else do you want to do besides write? You, just, you want to act? You want to do this? You want to do that? And said, well, I really like, you know, I did a lot of stand-up back in New York, and that's that's really what I want to do. So they called Mitzi Shore at the Comedy Store yeah. and uh, said, uh, hey, we have this guy. She said, well, I don't know him, so, you know, I'll give him. So what she ended up doing was she gave me a time certain yeah. on a Monday night potluck, which is like open mic night. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have to sign up, and I didn't have to stand in line. I had a certain time. So I go out in the first time and I do fine. I'd written some new material for, for LA and it worked okay. And then I got invited back the next time and it worked better. And then I got him back the third time and Mitzi was in the audience uh, for somebody else, showcasing somebody else. And I was, I had a cherry, like 10, 15, 10, 30, something like that time spot. Comedians in front of me had done really well. Audience was way up here. And I knew from all my experience, even at that age, but I'd done a lot, I knew all I had to do was not lose them. I just had to keep them there. I didn't have to do anything but keep them there. They'd be fine. Yeah. But it turns out that I, I squeezed like every laugh out of that set that I could get. So I walked off the stage to massive applause. And I went right up to Mitzi and I said, does it have to get any better than that? <laughs> and, and she said, all right, call in for spots. And. My name's been on the wall since then, you know, she's, I'm, I'm like an original paid regular. That but, is amazing. Yeah, that's my first love, man. That's my, that's the, that's the girl that got away stand up. And now I'm, now I'm happily married. I'm after her again. This is, my wife, my wife has given me permission to do this. That's awesome. So, so stand up comedy has really been a big part of your life ever since you were just a child. Oh yeah. Date going yeah, all the way back to the Stooges. All the way back to the Stooges and the fact that, that, it's it's my my love of stand up comedy is what got me thrown out of every school I ever went to. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh fuck yeah! You know, just I got thrown out of three different like I got thrown out of a public school and a private school and a, a bar mitzvah class. Oh wow! The week, the week before my bar mitzvah, like Thursday before the Saturday of my bar mitzvah, yeah. <laughs> and all, all three of those, and to my father's credit, good Jewish father that he is. When, when faced with an emotional crisis had, involving a misbehaving child, he did what any other good Jewish father would do. He just wrote a fucking check. <laughs> he just said to them, just tell me how much. I got people coming in from out of town. Just, just tell me how much. <laughs> That's it. And I think it was like 1500 something like that. They oh, said, my yeah, God. For 1500 he could still have his bar mitzvah. What? Yeah, it was just... What the so, hell? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I just every every you know every time I got thrown out of school it was just because they would you know like they would say well he takes control of the class they, they told my father once 
He takes control of the class. Yeah. And my father says, what do you mean he takes control of the class? Well, he starts being funny, and then nobody will pay any attention to the teachers. <laughs> and, and, and then my dad would just, like, shake his head. I have friends who I've kept in touch with from those days, right? Uh-huh. One of them is, like, one of my best friends that I've known since I was three years old. So there are a handful of people who, who uh, were my friends as a kid who are my friends now as an adult. I mean, like, real-life friends, right? Mm-hmm. And... Not, not a one of them is surprised at how my life turned out. Yeah. <laughs> not a one of them. But that's that's a good thing though, right? I guess that is. Yeah. But nobody's surprised. Yeah. Right? Oh, they, well, yeah, of course. You know? It's like you, yeah. you set, and way back in your in your childhood, you set these expectations, or your friends had set these expectations for you, and you met, you met that. I was talking to a guy... Who I had known, who I've known now, like 60, 55, 60 years of my 72 years, yeah. right? Maybe even longer. And he said to me, he wrote, we're, we're talking, and then he wrote something to me. He said, what, I, what he always thought about me as a kid was that my, I had this wonderful ability to be funny, but never at the expense of anyone else. Mm-hmm. And that was an observation that somebody had. It wasn't, that's not me. I, I didn't say that. My, it's my friend Zeke said that. Right. And I said, wow, that's interesting. I was trying, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just never made that. No, it's just that he said, he said, you were always very funny, but never at anyone's expense. He said, that was just wonderful. And yeah. I said, okay. That's, so I don't know. That is amazing. And I guess, I guess that's how my material is now, yeah. you know. It's uh, it's just character stuff. It's not you know, doesn't talk about anybody else but him. Yeah. You know, so. Stand up comedy was always something. Even when I was a child, was always something I was a fan of. And uh, I used to watch with my my late grandfather. We used to watch a lot of Don Rickles. Oh sure, I knew Don. I uh, I. Oh. I love Don Rickles so much. I still watch a lot of his stuff. Carol Bur- the uh, Carol Burnett's variety show, hmm? all that stuff. Uh, Chris Farley, John Candy, all those. But but I'm a big I'm a big Don Rickles fan. Yeah, Don was a sweet man. Oh, you do you knew him personally? I I, I knew him casually, but he okay. But um. I I was writing uh, I was writing monologues. I used to write monologues for the Tonight Show for a guest host who, who would guest host the show. Okay. And I, whenever that guy would do the show, I would write the monologue. So um, I had a friend, uh, Alan Landsberg, who was on CPO Sharky. Yeah. So so he played the if you know that show, so he played the really short guy. Right. 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 Um, so so. Alan was also a comedian. Yeah. So we knew each other from the comedy. So there was a certain joke in my act that I used to use, I do. And he had, t- he told Don that joke. And he said, Don thought it was like one of the funniest jokes that he had ever heard and wanted to meet me. So wow. I had met Don earlier at the, at the Raleigh, uh, but as the stage manager, right. You no, know, not, not as a comedian now, comedy writer and um he in the, in the halls of nbc behind in between the studios where cbo was sh- sharky was shot and where the tonight show was mm-hmm. i see rickles in his full makeup and and costume and he's with my friend david david said there he is there's mark he's the guy who wrote that joke so rickles came up to me and said you're mark huh huh you're mark i said yeah I said uh you wrote that joke I said, yeah <laughs> and then in the, in the, I don't know how to describe this. He smacked me across the face in the most kind, like like non-aggressive, avuncular way. And he said, you're too fucking young to write a joke that good. <laughs> that, is a, that is a very Don Rickles thing to say. Yeah. That's that. And, and, and then my, uh, many years later, my partner, uh, writing producing partner, was a guy named Sam Denoff, who uh, wrote and produced Dick Van Dyke and yeah. Batgirl. Uh, first book, Cosmo. We became partners, and then 
and he and Don were good friends because Sam wrote all the episodes that Don did when Don guest starred on that Dick Van Dyke show. Okay, it's a very small business that comedy business. Yeah, and people, it's it's a tough one to get your foot in the door, and if you're if you're trying to make a name for yourself, and that in the funny, huh? Not if you're funny. Yeah, but you got you got to be funny for everybody. Almost. Yeah, you gotta no, you gotta find your way. That's for sure. But but if you find your way, anyone who finds their way, if it's if it's like really their light, right? Mm-hmm. It's really their thing. They just show up and it happens. Yeah. I, I know that sounds like very esoteric and kind of ethereal, but I lived that life, and it wasn't just happening to me. Everybody who who I knew who went somewhere and had careers from, let's just say, the class of 77, all the people who were there. The people who went on to really have careers were people who were in motion from the moment they arrived. They were, you know, because back then, a lot of the audience of the comedy store were agents and managers and network and studio people. They would really, you know, I don't think it's that way so much anymore because I've been back there and it seems like it's now mostly audience audience. But every night, there were, were a lot of industry people there. Yeah. And uh, and nobody who went on to have a career stood on that comedy store stage for more than a month and did, didn't have multiple representation offers. Mm-hmm. And that's how it works. You know, as soon as that happens, then your career has a chance of really getting going. Yeah. So, you know, come to L.A., figure out exactly what you want to do from that day. And then understand that you can't do it by yourself. That, right. that the first step is to get real representation. Yeah, you have to. You have to convince. First job is not having the talent. The first job is convincing somebody else that their career, like an agent or a manager, will be enhanced if you are their client. Okay. Like when I was a young writer, my agent sent me around. And meet people, and I got mostly every job that I that I was sent up on because I presented myself really well. I was a comedian; I knew how to make people laugh, you know. So they were hiring a comedy writer, or they were hiring somebody who's supposed to be funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made it my business to be funny in the meeting. Yeah. So that's all you had to do is just con- you got to convince somebody else, not just yourself, because mm-hmm. you can't do. It alone. Yeah, well, it's like with uh, my wife and I. We. Uh... We're both both being uh, longtime fans and lovers of the film industry. Uh, a few years ago, we decided we wanted to try to kind of stick our foot in the door with it and just to see what we could do because it's uh, always been a dream of ours. And we started our own production studio together. Yeah, that's something. See, now there's an issue. Given that the technology is so different and even the distribution yeah. platforms are, are so different, situations like that, as filmmakers, as producers, as, as creators... Mm-hmm. You know, you can always make a film wherever you are. Yeah. I mean, shit, you can buy, you can buy four iPhone 13 Pros uh, and, and get a, a lighting lighting for all of them for under $20,000. Yeah. And uh, you suddenly have pretty much everything you need. Mm-hmm. And all you need to do is make sure you record your sound separately yeah. on a different track so you never have to marry anything. Uh-huh. That's just a, you know, learning. That's just a process thing. Yeah. And you can... If, if you write a script that's good, you'll find talent that'll do it. And, you know, George Romero did that. Wes and Sean did that. Yeah. Uh, um, lots of people do that. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, Quentin Tarantino also. Yeah. Yeah. And, so that's that's one thing you can do from anywhere. Yeah. And uh, that's where we actually, we have a, a, a film uh, that a friend of ours is directing that's about a very uh, lucid dream that he had, and we're going to start writing the script for it here in the next couple of weeks. Okay, and good for you. Hopefully, uh, early next year we'll be able to get to casting and shooting for it. And well, write a part for me. See, hey, I'd love to. <laughs> we'll have a have Junior make a, a cameo in it or something. Huh. <laughs> but that's that's something that you can do, like you know. Like, there are a couple of things I'd like to shoot, and I've actually thought about doing that. Yeah. Because uh, I know some some very talented DP friends of mine I've met over the years. If I had the right situation, I could probably get one of them to do it. 
Yeah. And so she, she laid it and shoot it for me. But yeah, all you need is is the right material there. Mm-hmm. You know, and and also develop a look, yeah. like an imprimatur, you know, a signature. Right. You know whether you got to know that you're going to have that. Right. You gotta, of you're going to have a signature. Yeah. Especially on a low budget movie. Oh yeah, and and a lot of our stuff is very very low budget. But yeah, like like I've always said, you, you got to start somewhere. You got to start yeah, somewhere. It's fun making movies. It is. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun. And and actually, uh, oddly enough, Wes is the one that seeing his movies is what kind of helped me realize my dream of wanting to also be a filmmaker. Well, technologically, it's just so much easier now. It is. It is. Uh, I know. Way back when it was. The technology really wasn't there the way it is today, and it's not one bit. So much more had to go into filmmaking than it does now. And we did all we did every effect on the day. Yeah, there there weren't any, there no computer effects, no CGI, no green screens, nothing. Mm. Every effect was as you know on the day. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, even even some of the great classic movies that had to had great effects for that time period that time period like uh richard donner's uh superman yeah you know that's great effect that time. that's always with with something like that that movie is always kind of an example i use because yeah. being the 70s you didn't have that it still didn't have cgi and everything was done on wires and stuff like that yep but, well, Mark, uh, we uh, we have reached the end of the show, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being on this. It means so much oh, to me Lord. that you were able to take take time from your personal life to to do this. I've got okay. a lot. A lot of my friends were very excited that you were you were going to be on, <laughs> and uh, and yep. I and I humbly you thank you for it. Me. Do what. Wish them well for me. I will. I will. And I humbly thank you for being a part of this. My pleasure. Hope it works for you. Oh. Oh, I'm sure it will. All right, man. All right. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that is Mark Scheffler. Thank you again so much for being on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to keep in touch. And anytime you want to come back, you are always more than welcome. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's very kind of you. All right. You have a, a great rest of your evening, sir. You too. Thank you again. Bye. Uh, goodbye. All right, folks. That, again, was Mark Scheffler from 1972's classic horror film, The Last House on the Left. Mark was such a humble man. It was so great to speak with him. Uh, those of you that submitted your questions, I hope that he answered them as you had hoped. And... That is going to do it for this episode of Happy Hour Podcast. I'm Mike. I hope you all stay well. And as always, do not, do not text and drive. Good night.